and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. My name is Catherine Rolfe. Today we are joined by an author of a review which focuses on painful and painless channelopathies. Let's hear from him introducing himself. I'm Dave Bennett. I'm a welcome senior clinical scientist uh, based at the University of Oxford and I also have a clinical practice as well. So I'm a consultant neurologist that has a particular clinical interest in painful neuropathies and channelopathies which is administered through a clinic here at the University Hospitals Oxford. Dr. David Bennett, thank you for joining us today. Firstly, what is the burden of chronic pain states and how common are these disorders? So chronic pain is incredibly uh, common within the population and this is something that's really been studied at population level in the last few years. And we're now beginning to realise that as much as one in five of the general population suffer from chronic pain. Of course, these levels will vary a bit as to how you exactly define chronic pain. If you take chronic pain as disabling pain lasting for longer than three months, it's actually very common in community studies. And I think another important point to make is this is a problem that's going to become more frequent and prevalent in the future. And that's because we're having a greater burden of chronic disease, such as diabetes, treatment for cancer, for instance, treatment with chemotherapy, chronic infections such as HIV. And these are all things that are likely to lead to damage to the sensory nervous system and leave people at risk of developing chronic pain. We should also say that we have an aging population and age in itself is is a risk factor for neuropathic pain. So this is a a big problem now and it's likely to become a a bigger problem in the future. What are nociceptors and why are voltage-gated sodium channels so important in nociceptor excitability and pain perception? So nociceptors were really first defined by Sherrington when he was working here in Oxford and was studying spinal reflexes. And he really proposed the hypothesis that there were a group of sensory neurons that were specifically designed to detect tissue injury and that could be from a variety of mechanisms such as burning the skin or high threshold mechanical stimulation or chemicals and that these neurons would be able to detect such injury and transmit it to the spinal cord and in fact that has proven to be the case we know that there are a group of sensory neurons that have either unmyelinated or thinly myelinated axons and that they project from their targets such as the skin to carry information to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. They're not a homogeneous population. Nociceptors will be attuned to detect different types of stimuli so that some nociceptors will respond to a range of injurious stimuli such as a mechanical and chemical and thermal stimuli. Others may be more designed, for instance, just to respond to pricking or incisions of the skin. And we know that they're very important in pain. They're essential for signaling and acute pain. And, and in fact, we know that because if you study patients, for instance, with mutations in a signaling system, the nerve growth factor pathway where nociceptors fail to develop, they have complete insensitivity to pain. And that is a nice illustration of how important these neurons are for our own protection. Because in fact, if nociceptors don't develop, then because people are unable to avoid harmful situations and detect uh, injury, they develop chronic problems such as joint problems and, and multiple injuries. And they're also extremely important ultimately in the development of chronic pain states and their function can change in the context of chronic pain. Your question as to why voltage-gated sodium channels are so important, well, I think you could argue that voltage-gated sodium channels have a profound impact in neurobiology because they're so important in driving excitability of neurons and the generation of action potentials. We know that there's some voltage-gated sodium channels that 
show some selectivity for the peripheral nervous system, such as the Volgecated Station Channel NAV 1.7 and 1.8 and 1.9, and that some of these are in fact fairly selectively expressed in nociceptors. And it's an evolving area really in the last decade where we begin to realize that actually there's some high-impact mutations in these sodium channels that can have a very direct role in altering pain signaling. And what are the different types of hereditary sensory and autonomic neuropathies linked to mutations that alter the function of ion channels? The way I would answer that question is really to consider the definition of hereditary sensory and autonomic neuropathy. So by neuropathy, I would define that as a state where there's actually damage to or failure to develop of axons. And so that can be associated with a channelopathy. But I would also say that ion channel dysfunction can lead to quite profound disturbance of function within the nervous system in the absence of axon degeneration. So I guess I'm opening out your question a bit more here. And that's because there are a number of ion channel mutations that can lead to profound loss of function in terms of ability to detect injurious stimuli and to perceive pain. And the first one of those to be discovered was NAV 1.7, originally published in a paper by Jeff Woods Group in Cambridge, where they showed that loss of function in that single ion channel led to complete inability to experience pain due to homozygote loss of function alleles in that particular gene. And that was of great significance to pain biology. Those subjects also described anosmia, inability to smell in combination with insensitivity to pain, but were otherwise normal. As we said before, pain has an important protective function and they are at high risk of accumulating injuries as they age, but of course this has led to great interest in, in this particular ion channel NAV 1.7, which is encoded by the SCN9A gene as an important target for novel analgesic. That's not the only ion channel which, when disturbed, can lead to insensitivity to pain. And there was a, a recent publication showing that actually, interestingly, a gain of function mutation in NAV 1.9, which is encoded by the gene SCN11A, can also lead to insensitivity to pain. And, and that mechanism is quite distinct and the proposed mechanism is that the gain of function in the ion channel leads to quite a profound change in the resting membrane potential, so a depolarization of the resting membrane potential. And then that gives rise to almost like a depolarizing block, so inactivation of other voltage-gated sodium channels, so that in that case, nociceptors are unable to sustain action potential generation in the context of this gain-of-function mutation. I have to say that proposed mechanism hasn't been completely elucidated, and there, there may be other proposals, such as a kind of fatigue of those neurons. So that's two examples, and actually, interestingly, comparison in that one is a loss of function in an ion channel expressed in sensory neurons, whilst the other is a gain of function in an ion channel expressed in sensory neurons, both leading to insensitivity to pain. Originally, when Jeff Wood's group described these mutations in NAV 1.7, loss of function mutations causing insensitivity to pain, the proposal was that this was in the context of a completely structurally normal sensory nervous system. So very distinct from some of the classic hereditary sensory and autonomic neuropathies, such as those due to mutations in either the gene nerve growth factor or it's the receptor for nerve growth factor, which is track A. And in that case, there's a profound developmental phenotype where nociceptors fail to develop, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, it's true that there's been some recent suggestions that there may be some actual structural change within sensory neurons in the context of loss of function mutations in NAV 1.7, perhaps not in all cases, but in a subset of cases, there may actually be some failure of axons to fully innovate the epidermis and, in fact, more of a generalized neuropathy in the loss of function mutations. And what are the different types of heritable pain states associated with gain-of-function gene variants in ion channels? 
Okay, well, that's certainly a growing area, and, and in fact, we're almost on a monthly basis learning of new monogenic pain syndromes associated with the gain-of-function mutations. So it's a very interesting area of, of biology to be working on. I suppose in some ways it's probably easier to answer that question splitting up into the different functional categories of iron channels. So if you take Volge-gated sodium channels, and now we go back to NAV 1.7, but instead of loss-of-function mutations, we talk about gain-of-function mutations. The first syndrome that was really associated with pain associated with such gain-of-function mutations was inherited erythromyalgia. And that's a rare condition, but patients develop severe pain and redness of the extremities, usually starting in the feet. And often that pain in erythema is temperature-dependent, so warming can exacerbate attacks and cooling can relieve attacks. And that was shown to be due to changes in the pulse dependence of activation of the iron channel in the context of these mutations. We now know there's other distinct clinical syndromes that can be caused by usually distinct mutations in NAV 1.7. So in contrast to mutations which promote activation, there's another condition which is called paroxysmal extreme pain disorder, which used to be called familial rectal pain, and then the the name was changed around about the time that, that these mutations were first described. And paroxysmal extreme pain disorder, instead of affecting the extremities, such as erythromyalgia, causes quite a proximal pain syndrome, often causing pain around the eyes, around the mandible and the mouth, and around the perineal area. And that pain can be triggered by physical stimuli, such as chewing or defecation, and can be associated, again, actually, with vascular changes, such as a flare response. And, and that can cause a very distressing pain syndrome. And in fact, that's not due to altered activation, but it's due to a failure of inactivation of the same voltage sodium channel, NAV 1.7. And finally, we now know that a number of cases of what we call small fiber neuropathy, so that is where small fibers, which mainly constitute nociceptors and also subpopulation of autonomic fibers, degenerate, whilst the larger fibers, for instance, subserving touch and vibration sense, which have large myelinated axons, are relatively unscathed. And there are now patients with small fibroneuropathies which have been found to be due to gain-of-function mutations in NAV 1.7. Those slightly different in that often the age of onset of the small fibroneuropathy is later, and we still have some work to do on the genetics there as to be clear how penetrant those mutations are. This field has then been expanding, and, and uh, recently Steve Waxman's group have shown that gain-of-function mutations in NAV 1.8 can also cause a small fibroneuropathy. And to complete the trombrate of vulgicated sodium channels, it's also recently been shown that an, another episodic pain syndrome in which, again, this is pain now, particularly affecting the extremities, and having a, another quite characteristic feature is that the pain seems to be responsive to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is due to gain-of-function mutations in NAV 1.9. So we're seeing a whole spectrum of disease, and I suppose I've shown you, as it were, the more defined phenotypes. I wouldn't be at all surprised if usually when you start looking at monogenic syndromes, as time goes on and you get more information about the phenotype, you might see some overlaps within these phenotypes. And one other gene, which now is not a vulgicated sodium channel, but has a pedigree, as it were, in pain research, is a TRIP channel called TRIP-A1. And that TRIP-A1 can really be seen as a, an important non-selective cation channel that can respond to a whole range of environmental irritants. So, for instance, mustard oil and cinnamaldehyde are agents that can activate this channel, as can the active component of tear gas, and it can also respond to extreme cold. And there are gain-of-function mutations in, in this iron channel TRIP-A1. They're likely to be fairly rare, and I studied one of these families in Colombia. And again, it has quite a distinct clinical phenotype, so patients complain of a lot of pain, usually in the chest, 
the pain builds up over time, over about an hour, and there are some triggers, for instance, fasting, patients being cold, exercise, and then usually reach a crescendo, and then there's a decrement in the pain. And that's due to, again, a gain-of-function mutation with the channel carrying more current near resting membrane potential. So there's quite a spectrum there now, and, and I suspect that we may even be scraping the surface, and there will be more clinical syndromes associated with bulgicated stem channel mutations as time goes on. And how are variations in ion channel genes associated with altered pain perception in acquired chronic pain syndromes? So now we're really moving to the idea that instead of having a very high impact ion channel mutation causing, as it were, a Mendelian pain disorder, that more subtle variants, some of which may be present within the general population, so more accurately defined as a variant of a polymorphism, that may have an impact on either the risk or severity of neuropathic pain in response to another injurious stimuli. So for instance, I guess the context here would be someone that has degeneration in the lumbar spine, a disc which is pressing on a nerve root, and what other factors are there genetic factors which relate to ion channels which could impact on either their risk of developing neuropathic pain, the severity or the chronicity of that neuropathic pain. And in fact, we know this is probably really quite a complex interaction between gene and environment. There are lots of factors that may be important, such as gender. Women are more likely to develop chronic pain, such as previous experience. Psychological factors, the way you view your and response to threat, but also variance in ion channels. I think it's fair to say that this is in some ways a more challenging area to work because the impact of these variants is likely to be much lower. So they're probably only explaining a small part of the variance within the population. That isn't to say it's not important, and, and the reason it may be important is that if we can identify variants in ion channels that modulate risk and severity of neuropathic pain, then they would be good targets for drug discovery. So we could reveal some important biology as has been done in many other fields, a good example being type 2 diabetes, where lots of interesting biology has been revealed from some large-scale genetic studies. I think it's fair to say that in the pain field, we're still somewhat in our infancy in, in this kind of more complex area of genetics where we're looking at more subtle effects of polymorphisms within the genome. There are a number of studies reported in terms of candidate gene studies where people have taken targets that would have some a priori knowledge about them within the pain field, or we may know that their expression changes in the context of a chronic pain model in a row and taken those targets and then looked at them in terms of human populations. And certainly there have been some very interesting findings and you could go back to some of the examples we've discussed that are important in terms of inherited pain syndromes such as NAV 1.7, but also some new molecules as well. So an example would be KCNS1, which is potassium channel, the subunit that links with other vulgicated potassium channels, which has been linked to severity and risk of neuropathic pain. Another example would be PR2X7, which is a purinoceptor and which can form really quite a large pore within the membrane and interestingly is not expressed in neurons, but is actually expressed in cells of immune origin. And there's been some nice studies showing that that is a determinant of the degree of hypersensitivity following a nerve injury in a rodent. Uh, this is Jeff Mogul's group working with Mike Salter. They went on to show that variants in that gene also seem to modify risk and severity of chronic pain in humans. The reason I say it's still somewhat in its infancy is to do these studies, you need quite large cohorts of patients and a number of studies were still awaiting replication. We're still also really awaiting large genome-wide association studies in the pain field. I think partly this area is challenging. Not only do you need these large cohorts, but you need very detailed phenotyping of patients. And I think it's important to say that pain is not a unitary phenomenon, it's a very complex phenomenon, and there may be a number of different ways you could 
phenotype or describe pain, for instance, whether it's a stabbing electric shock-like pain, a constant burning pain, uh, whether pain can be evoked by certain stimuli such as cooling or mechanical stimuli. And so, in fact, drawing out all of those details from large population cohorts can be quite complex. Having said that, I think the pain field is now trying to address this and certainly there's some large international collaborations going on trying to get a handle on this more complex area of genetics within pain biology. And finally, how can increased understanding of the role of ion channels improve treatment of chronic pain states? Well, I think it's really been wonderful in the last couple of decades how much insight we've gained into how a nociceptor works, really. I think when I started in the pain field, and see, that was a time where we were certainly fairly good at describing the physiology of, of nociceptors. And for instance, we knew that a high-threshold mechanical stimulus could activate a subset of sensory neurons. But in many cases, we didn't know the mechanisms by which that happened. And a combination of genetics and biophysics, we now have a wonderful list of areas where we've really got much more insight into how nociceptors transduce sensory stimuli and how they generate this response in relation to tissue injury. Certainly, hopefully, we will see in the next few decades that this can be translated into treatment. And certainly, it gives you great security if you see these important clinical syndromes. They may be rare, but they give great insight into biology in humans. So for instance, the fact that NAB 1.7, if you lose function in this ion channel, you see a complete loss and inability to experience pain. And if you have gain of function mutations in the same ion channel, this can cause a number of distinct chronic pain syndromes in patients. That clearly makes it a very good target for analgesic drug discovery. And in fact, Certainly, a number of large pharmaceutical companies have quite major drug programs trying to get selective blockers of this particular vulgated sodium channel. It's not easy to develop such selective antagonists of vulgated sodium channels, and certainly selectivity is important because, for instance, you wouldn't want to affect vulgated sodium channels present in the heart, and you may be concerned about affecting vulgated sodium channels within the central nervous system. I think it's also true to say that's kind of looking to the future and can we develop novel analgesics, and that's very important. But in fact, within the pain field, there are limits to what we can do with the current therapies available to us. It may be as much as 40% of patients or more with chronic pain that don't feel that current therapy is effective. And we, we have some range of current therapies available to us, but often it's very difficult to know how we target therapies to individual patients. And it's certainly true to say that if we can identify high-impact mutations or mutations that we think are relevant in patients that may relate to a particular biological system, that we may target our therapy with more efficacy. And so trying to improve both clinical phenotyping and genetics may allow us to make better use of our armamentarium that we have at the moment, as well as looking to the future and, and taking some of these biological pathways and developing them for novel analgesics in times to come. Dr. David Bennett, thank you for speaking with The Lancet Neurology. It's a pleasure.